Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the History Hour here on KZMU. I am your host and guide, Blaine. And today we have a very special episode. We are coming to you live from Top of Rocky Road here in Moab. And I have Mr. Stephen Zacharias from the Moab Museum. And we're going to be doing uh, sort of an episode two of Moab Beginnings and sort of how the town here got founded. And I'm going to go ahead and let Stephen uh, go ahead and introduce yourself here, Stephen. Yeah, thank you for having me. I am Stephen Zacharias. I'm the History Programs Interpreter at Moab Museum. I moved here about the middle of November, so kind of hit the ground running um, with the Moab Museum. It's been a great time so far. Awesome, cool. So so you do, uh, can, can you tell us a little bit more about, about these interpretive uh, walks that you do through the town and kind of like, uh, kind of just how all that kind of goes there for you? Right. Uh, so when I was asked to, to come to Moab uh, by the staff, uh, one of the things I looked at was um, Moab and the people that come to Moab associate the beginning of the world in Moab with Charlie Steen, uranium, and then national parks, mm-hmm. uh, which makes sense. But I figured there's got to be more to that story. And in the course of, of doing that, it actually hit upon something I have a 20-year career as a living historian and a cultural interpreter, so I focus on first peoples, who was there originally, and then who displaced them, and mm-hmm. then how did the, the place come to be, right? And so uh, there was a big ag- agriculture story, and agricultural history, ag history, is something that's near and dear to me. I've worked at a lot of living history sites where I had historic heritage breed poultry and livestock to work with. We had historic structures and and whatnot. And so I started to look around. How can I tell the ag history of Moab? And the best way to do that is the historic business district, which is that um, west side of Main Street between Center and 100. Mm -hmm. Uh, A.G. Wilson had set that aside as the original business district on his land. And then the rest of it just kind of boomed from there. And a lot of the buildings that are still standing and some that aren't um, all, all trace back to guys that originally came to Utah as cowboys, made a living down on Indian Creek near um, the Nature Conservancy's historic dugout ranch today. And then they took that money they made, brought it to Moab and invested it in the community here. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I find it quite interesting that, um, you know, we, we had spoken before and, and you had just mentioned about how a lot of people like to focus kind of sort of like right around 1952 uh, when uranium um, was sort of the boom started out here. And then, of course, tourism. And but I've always said, because, you know, I'm also a guide out here in uh, these national parks. And I always tell people, you know, Moab's gone through three different phases. <laughs> right. We've gone through the agriculture phase, uh, which was the very, very, very beginning. And actually, if you look at the timeline, that's sort of the longest running phase that Moab has ever gone through. Then we've got that short little uranium boom phase. And then now we were in tourism. So now we're a tourist boom town. Um, so yeah, and, uh, we sort of, uh, we sort of ended the uh, last episode, um, right around, uh, around 1880 ish. Uh, I talked about, uh, the old Spanish trail and I talked about the Elk Mountain mission and I hit on William Grandstaff just a little bit. Uh, but I did an entire episode on, uh, William Grandstaff with Mary Langworthy. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think it'd be cool to just kind of pick up right there and, uh, we'll just sort of hear the story of, of, uh, how this town was founded right then and there absolutely that sounds good to me it was a, a great episode mary's done a lot of great work on mm-hmm. william grandstaff and his story um kind of separating him from his moniker which actually if you look at the stories of negro bill mm-hmm. uh, it's about three different guys that i've been able to identify that went by that moniker mm. on green river the colorado river uh, two of them i've identified as william grandstaff are cowboy and then another cowboy who ran cattle to the green river stockyards in the 30s and 40s and he has stuff at chesler park in some of the cowboy camps there is his name Interesting. Uh, supposedly there's even a charcoal draw self-portrait or whatever but he comes at least a decade and a half after mm-hmm. the william grandstaff of william grandstaff so I, I really appreciate what mary's done with oh, yeah. that um uh, 
because people say, oh, well, you've ruined the history. And really now we're honoring the guy because it's his story and not a conglomeration of three or four different people's stories mm-hmm. into one man. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's been good to see that. And he does play a role in the, the early part. Um, one of the, the assignments I was given was how do I better tell stories? How do I tell the stories of agriculture? Uh, the walking tour is the, the lowest hanging fruit, so to speak, yeah. <laughs> to use to use Moab orchard history there. Mm-hmm. Um, so every Thursday, 10 o'clock, you can buy a ticket and come on and walk around the block. Uh, of course, our blocks are based on the Plata Zion. Mm-hmm. It has to do with uh, A.G. Wilson, uh, Alfred Gideon Wilson uh, being a, a settlement builder for the Mormon church or the, the LDS church. And uh, so it's a one-mile block. So it takes mm-hmm. about an hour to walk around. And we talk about that early history Um 1879 is the first recorded winter where we see non-native occupation of the valley here. Mm. Um, Cowboys called this the Little Green Valley. Mm -hmm. It was a place where you wanted to retire. You would make enough money raising cattle or sheep or hogs or or the mix, and then you would come to the Little Green Valley. You'd marry your Sally, a.k.a. the school mom and uh you'd you'd have a nice life Hmm. uh the problem was is that the little green valley was a desirable place to spend the winter time and for time in memoriam the ancient puebloans all the way through to the modern ute and paiute knew that this is where you come to spend your winters Hmm. and so as you guys you have mentioned before and other people Elk Mountain Mission wasn't successful because they found out in late fall that Mm -hmm. all the Indians come here (laughs) and through, you know, white fear and and Eurocentric fear of the Indian, Mm -hmm. it failed. And um, we don't see a successful overwinter until that 1879 on the books. Mm -hmm. We do know that in 1878, the Ninth Cavalry was part of the F.B. Hayden expedition to map the region. And they stayed at the old Mormon fort on October 15th, 1878. And there's no mention of any neighbors, of any animals, anything. Hmm. We know in 1879 that William Grandstaff, his partner Frenchie, Hmm. as history records it, and then two sons of Alfred Gideon Wilson stayed over winter. Hmm. And in 1880, that spring, Alfred Gideon Wilson, the uh, Louisa Powell and her brother, um, Bishop Stewart and his three wives and a variety of other citizens come and they settle uh, what we now call Moab in that spring of 1880. And uh, there's about, I've been able to identify at least 10 families, a part of that first group uh, that come here and plot out the town. And when they did, uh, Alfred Gideon Wilson saved that east side of his property, what we now call the west side of, of Main Street there between Center and 100 as reserve for the historic business district. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where all the first businesses started to pop up was mm-hmm. on that, that side of the street. Interesting. Were some of these first families here, because um, I know there are, Oh, as a guide out here, you hear a lot of different things. Yeah. <laughs> I hear I hear one guy talking about this, and I hear one guy talking about that. Um, so there's always this thing of like, was Moab truly a Mormon-based founded town with the people who were the first ones to successfully settle here? It, that's kind of one of those yes and no questions. Mm-hmm. So um, Moab just like a lot of other places is a good mix. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, there was Mormons here. There was Mormons sent here specifically to resettle the old, uh, Elk Mountain mission, the old fort. Um, originally AG Wilson had made a deal with Frenchie that would have put it out closer to, I would guess like 500 West and Bird Avenue. That should have been where Wilson's was. But mm-hmm. before he got back in the spring, Frenchie had made a deal with somebody else. This is another reason why we think he was probably a French Canadian trader mm-hmm. or, or a tr- 
trapper of some kind because he is recorded of making all kinds of deals. And some of them worked out well for people and others like A.G. Wilson, it didn't work out at all. (laughs) Um, So A.G. has to get a new plot of land. And that's what becomes basically from uh, across the street from Spitfire Grill all the way down to across the street from Rim Cycle. That was his his plot and then it appears that the town was plotted off of wilson's block Hmm. and that's how the town gets laid out and it gets laid out in the plat of zion which is lds city plotting uh you know the way they set up a, a town so those one the blocks are all one mile around that block is set up so that you have a place for a house, you have a place for a kitchen garden, you have a place for crops, you have a place for orchards, and then you have a place for livestock. And that is how they laid out the town. But quickly, on the heels of all that, you have Gentiles or or Mm non-Mormons coming in because this little green valley is so attractive and it's got mild winters. Um, and so you have a good mix of people that are here right from the beginning. So yes, the Mormons sent a group of people here specifically to try again and establish a city, Mm. but the influence is a variety of folks who are congregationalists, who are Baptists, who are atheists, who have no belief in anything, Mm. um, that are coming here. Uh, the other big myth being that it was all cowboys came here because there was no Mormons here. Well, that's just not <laughs> true. Yeah. Um, the the first LDS church is built, and then the second one, the variety of uh, a variety of the guys that we talk about every Thursday, they helped invest in what's now the Mark Building, the Moab Arts and Recreation Center, was the second LDS church, and it was mm. kind of built there around the the turn of the the century when the town was starting to become a city, mm-hmm. which it does in 1902. And then by 1903, there's a group of these same cowboys who all lived around Mormons down on Indian Creek, who now live amongst Mormons in Moab, mm-hmm. and they build the first Baptist church, which Sea Caven calls their home now oh, okay. in 1903. But prior to that, um, Mr. Goodman, Henry Goodman, uh, he married Lulu Brumley and Miss Lulu Goodman. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was the organist for the LDS Church for the first three years that she lived in Moab until the Baptist Church opened its doors. And then the LDS Church lost their organist because Lulu went to go play the piano at the Baptist Church, <laughs> uh, which her and her husband helped build. So, um, there's intermixing, there's business dealings. Did people always get along? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some great stories of folks not getting along at Indian Creek and also not getting along here in town. Yeah. Uh, but then they all invest their monies together and put those into civic deals like building churches to um, you know, creating uh, organizations that strive to create public libraries and uh, almost all of them end up serving at some time on the school boards, um, you know, and fraternal organizations like Woodmen of the World Mm -hmm. um, to further advance uh, the society and the community that was building here that was both Mormon and non-Mormon. Yeah. Kind of like it is today. Exactly. I feel like Absolutely. it's exactly, yeah, okay. So pretty much, you know, because a lot of times when I'm guiding people out in the backcountry, you know, they always ask me, well, what's the town of Moab like? And, right. you know, are you guys like, how, like, how many people are Mormon in Moab? And I'm like, you know, there's actually, Moab is a really good mix. Like, we're literally kind of like a little melting pot out here. You know, we got people from all over the country yeah, that, that move here. Um, and, uh, you know, we got all different types of religious backgrounds here in Moab. And, uh, yeah, so. Yeah, I would say it's been that way here since 1881, and we didn't become a city until 1902. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because also, you know, Moab gets its name in uh, 1880, correct? Around 1880? Yeah, around 1880 is when they first dub it um, Moab. Uh, it has to do with. Uh, Moab of the Bible was referred to as the far country, mm-hmm. and I kind of have to laugh because I have a lot of people, uh, one of the challenges of bringing in outside uh, programs 
is how do I get to Moab? <laughs> you guys aren't close to anything. Nope. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the other favorite part is, well, Canyonlands Regional Airport's not a real airport. What's the closest real airport to you? <laughs> and I've had some people scoff at me when I said Grand Junction, Colorado, and they're like, that's not a real airport either. <laughs> so yeah. we still are the far country. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is interesting, um, Mary Langworthy, she has got a great exhibit right now uh, called uh, A Grand Heritage, Stories mm. from the Oral Archive. Mm-hmm. And one of the exhibits in there features a man by the name of Henry Krauss, who mm-hmm. was our first weather observer mm-hmm. here. He was probably the second or third postman, although history has recorded him as the first postmaster of uh, Moab. He wasn't. Mm-hmm. He didn't get here until 1882, mm-hmm. and he didn't become postmaster until 1883. Mm-hmm. Um but when he did, he tried to change the name to Uvidalia. Uvidalia. That was what he <laughs> wanted to do. Um, he was a horticulturalist by uh, oh, okay. trade, and I believe that is a, a Latin term related to horticulture. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't been able to nail it down specifically. We did find one article, and USU's tried to help me find out if any others exist. He created the Uvidalia Seedling Apricot, and his orchards is what Center Street Ballpark is now. His oh, okay. house was on the south side of that block near where the playground is today, mm-hmm. and his orchards and vineyards surrounded it, uh, took up all the baseball fields. Interestingly enough, he was the one who made the deal with Moab Athletic Club mm-hmm. to sell off part of his orchard to create the first baseball field. And then by the time he was ready to abandon it, he sold off the remaining part of his block mm. to create all the baseball po- fields that wow. are there to this day. So yeah. since the 1920s, Henry Krause's place has been a baseball field for Moab. Oh, really? Since yeah. Okay, cool. So I was, I was kind of wondering yeah. when did it shift from orchards to baseball field? <laughs> right, yeah. 1920s. Okay. Yeah, 1921, he starts uh, making the deals, and then he passes away a year later. Mm. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, um, oh, Vena, Utah. I heard, mm. I read in a book that a, uh, a lot of people were, didn't really like the name Moab at first, and they were trying to uh, have the name changed to Vena also. I heard that was one that was kind of tossed up there, which is Spanish for the word vine, I believe. Right. Yeah. Um, and there were, um, it, it's really hard because, I mean, we only have an hour here. I only have an hour on my walk. Yeah. Uh, I, I like to refer to the, the walk, walking tour, the ag tour, we focus mainly on livestock. Mm-hmm. And I am working on some programming that we can then switch to orchards and produce because mm-hmm. Moab has a huge orchard and produce story that is it, its own couple hours worth of programming as well because we have several different varieties of grapes that Mm -hmm. get grown that don't appear anywhere else in history Mm. uh the most famous of which being the holyoke grape Mm -hmm. uh the holyoke family uh, poverty flats spanish valley uh they seem to have brought a grape that probably is close to what in the, when I lived in the South, we called them muscadines. Oh, yeah. And so yeah. it was probably a grape that is very similar to a mm. muscadine, um, which I miss. <laughs> very, Me very too. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, because we're, we're, we're both from the Southeast. <clears throat> and uh, being from North Carolina, we had a lot of muscadines and yeah. get muscadine jam and all that. All that so I've heard some there. rumors that there are, and I don't know if there's still members of the Holyoke family or descendants of the Holyoke mm-hmm. family. There are supposed to be a couple places here that still have Holyoke grapes. So I'm Ooh. I'm hoping to track those down and see <laughs> if they are really that close to a muscadine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but you have, uh, you know, a, a great grape industry that happens here mm-hmm. uh rc clark uh robert clark um he had a son that was the w- first one to plant ziffendale hmm. uh on a terraced piece of property he had next to the canyon walls mm-hmm. and then he ended up bringing in concord grapes to make jelly after mm-hmm. the ziffendale grapes took off and so it's not a modern thing that uh moab was known for grapes and wine and, yeah uh henry kraus and his neighbor henry goodman who his house was a magnificent house at the site of the current public library 
they both got in trouble multiple times for selling wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would then appeal to the that they were just selling vinegar. They weren't actually selling wine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so sometimes they had to pay the fines and other times they got off. Yeah. So. <laughs> Interesting. Just good old classic Moab. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I highly recommend. I actually went into the museum uh, a few days ago and I saw that exhibit, and it's pretty awesome. That giant was it a giant encyclopedia? Yes, it had. was his uh, dictionary. Henry his dictionary, Krauss, yeah, uh, loved his dictionary, and he uh, in 1894 met. He was divorced twice, and his his last wife Hattie Clark. They got married here in Moab mm-hmm. in April of ni- 1894, and their studio portraits from their wedding day. He has a 10-pound 1883 <laughs> Webster's Unabridged Dictionary on his lap uh, because it was that important to him. It mm. had to be in his wedding photo. And that's, that's the one that's on display. The one that's on display is an in-kind. I wasn't able to track down his oh, okay. actual dictionary, uh-huh. but I was able to locate a uh, same edition. Yeah. And so we have that on display for people to see. The stuff that's in the glass case mm-hmm. is from his personal collection. So awesome. we have one of his journals, a pocket dictionary, and then his copy of Les Mis by Hugo. Hmm. Um, one of his descendants lives up in Salt Lake City now, and he loaned that to us for oh, the awesome. duration of the yeah. exhibit. Yeah, that is like the biggest dictionary I think I've ever seen in my yeah. life. <laughs> 10 pounds. It's, <laughs> it's pretty heavy. It's pretty, not something you're going to toss in the backpack to take down no. to the coffee shop, right? <laughs> so also another thing, you know, with the founding of uh, Moab that we also hear, um, and sorry, I'm going to use you to sort of debunk a lot of things. Sure. Yeah, I, I love, I love um, myth busting. Oh, I, yeah, me too. <laughs> and and I know I've got a lot of guides that actually tune in to this, uh, to this uh, uh, show here. And so... Um, but yeah, another thing is uh, that Moab was a town that was uh, just super rowdy back in the day. You know, you got outlaws, Butch Cassidy, um, the Hole in the Wall Gang, Wild Bunch, all of them kind of, you know, kind of kind of blowing through here. Of course, we've got our, our own uh, outlaw celebrity, uh, uh, Bill Tibbetts, you know, in town. And so, uh, you know, yeah, kind of one of those, kind of one of those, uh, I don't want to say myths, but you know, as Moab was a place that was just super unruly. And I've heard that that's why Moab got its name also of being a sinful city in the Bible is that because there was just a bunch of outlaws down here and, and, um, Gentiles, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we probably could do that. I, one of the first things I did look at was why Moab. And you have to look at it. The first handful of families that voted to have it named Moab were Mormon families that mm. came here as part of that original LDS group with A.G. Wilson. Yeah. A.G. and his wife Jane, uh, Miss Louisa Powell, her brother, uh, the the Bishop Stewart from Randolph, Utah, that's named for Randolph Stewart, Bishop Stewart. Mm-hmm. Um, they all came here and they chose the name. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I did look in the Bible, Moab is initially referred to as the far country. And so the choice of Moab, I think evidence-wise, is it was far from everything oh yeah absolutely. and so that was why they chose moab it didn't have to do with the <laughs> the carousing and the partying and the gentile <laughs> influence right. i believe that over time that's what oral tradition says and mm-hmm. oral history says but we have to be really careful it's why i like to use original as close to the date as possible, oh, newspapers, um, obituaries, and then the really valuable thing that I have found for us is the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, in 1938 did a series of personal pioneer interviews. Mm. So a lot of the guys that I'm able to talk about, I can sit down and read their own words, and they tell their own stories mm-hmm. as they responded. Now are all those guys always honest, right. uh, you know, it maybe, maybe not. Um, but using the newspapers, using their obituaries and using those interviews, we can kind of suss that all out. The, the, the real challenge of Moab early history is everybody was from Texas. They were all an outlaw and they drove longhorn cattle into, <laughs> into the region. Right. Yeah. Well, just like today, they weren't all from Texas. Mm-hmm. Guys were from all over the place. 
Um, they would come from New England, the Great Lakes, the Southeast, couple guys from Texas, a handful of guys from Northern Utah who grew up in Mormon families. Mm-hmm. You had a variety of backgrounds. You had a variety of experiences. Some of these guys didn't know how to cowboy until they got here and started doing it. Yeah. The unique thing is, is that the guys who did know what they were doing were guys like David Lafayette Gadlock, who was born in Georgia, raised in Arkansas, uh, in the song Blue Mountain by Fred Keller. He's referred to as Yarn Gallus Mm -hmm. because every Christmas his mother would send him a pair of handmade yarn suspenders. Uh, And he uh, would come and he would work as a Carlisle cowboy foreman. Another Mm -hmm. one that would work for the Carlisles is our first mayor, Henry Green, Mm -hmm. who, uh, uh, Harry Green, excuse me, Harry Green also was a cashier and an investor of the First National Bank of Moab. Mm -hmm. Uh, The rumor, the legend, the myth, he carried six-shooter on on him at all times his entire life, even when he was a cashier at the bank. We had another investor, uh, Warner uh, Eugene Gordon, the white guys called him Bill. The Mexican cowboys he hired called him Latigo. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of got a reputation of uh, his name, Latigo Gordon. And even in the music, he was the owner of the Blue Goose Saloon down there in Monticello, hmm. trying to keep the Mormons at bay, figuring if he opens a saloon, they won't they won't move into town and take over. <laughs> yeah. uh, it didn't work out so well for him, so he came to Moab. But he was a Carlisle foreman for 30 years of his life. Uh, and... Uh, these guys admit Harry Green, David Gadlock, uh, Latigo Gordon, these guys all admit, I hired Harry Longbaugh. I hired Matt Warner. Mm-hmm. I hired outlaws because Cowboys is a seasonal gig. It's just like working for any mm-hmm. federal agency today. You've got to go somewhere in the summer, and then you got to find somewhere to work in the winter. Right, yeah. And so a seasonal gig, outlaws are perfect for that because – Nobody's stealing cattle Mm -hmm. from an outlaw who's not afraid to put you in the ground. Uh, Mr. Goodman, he learned from Clay Allison. He was an I.W. Lacey cowboy. Mm -hmm. um, And uh, Clay Allison decided, I'd rather live by the shotgun than work a decent day's wage. (laughs) So after that first trail to up the uh, Goodnight Loving Trail to Denver, Clay Allison quit the I.W. Lacey company and Harry Goodman got promoted to be the trail boss for I.W. Lacey and had a huge uh, connection there. So all these guys know everybody who's affiliated with Robber's Roost. They know the Wild Bunch. They see you coming a mile away because they used to be your boss. (laughs) So the advantage that Moab banks especially had over places like Price and Helper Mm is your old ranch foreman runs the bank. Your old ranch foreman walks around downtown. Hmm. So if you even sniff that you're about to cause some trouble, they're going to put you down before you ever get a chance to do anything. So family members, you know, several generations later, they love that folklore, right? And mm-hmm. we love that cowboy legacy. And we all want to be related to the, the wild bunch. And we mm-hmm. all want to be part of Robber's Roost. They're part of this story. They're just not the outlaw part of the story. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, because, you know, we we all hear all the all the outlaw stories, you know, and, and, and they make for good tales to tell whenever you're guiding, you know. Right. <laughs> People just love them. You know, like old Butch Cassidy coming through town and paying, uh, paying uh, the ferryman uh, a lot of money to right. keep quiet and uh, and to take him across the river. And uh, there's even an old story of uh, of them uh, stealing uh, um, uh, Doc Williams' mare mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. one time. I know yeah. um, I know his grandson is is my boss over there at Naftec Expeditions, and that's one of the that's one of the stories that people just love to hear. Is uh, they stole they they stole his mare. And he rode out to the robber's roost or wherever they were uh, hiding out because he knew, ex- I mean, he knew the area better than anyone else. Right. And so he rode out there and grabbed his mare. Nobody said a word and he came right back into town. <laughs> Absolutely. And see, that's, that's how it worked here is yeah. that mm-hmm. 
everybody knew who these guys were. Yeah. It wasn't a mystery, and they couldn't sneak around town mm-hmm. because, like, Doc Williams was retrieving his horse. Yeah. You, you know, your old bosses and your old coworkers, mm-hmm. they all lived here and do business here in Moab. Mm-hmm. Um, what I find interesting is that we get focused on those those big names and those big stories, mm-hmm. but, like, I just found this great story uh, this morning in the Morning Examiner from Ogden, Utah, mm-hmm. in December of 1905. And I think this is the best story about any cowboy in Moab that I've read. And it has to do with Mr. Goodman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the wealthiest man in Grand County and usually one of our most peaceable c- citizens. But he got his fighting clothes on Thursday night and proceeded to clean up the town. (laughs) He first went into the store of Cooper and Martin and gave Vincent Peter Martin, manager of the firm, a good cussing and incidentally pulled Mr. Martin's nose and slapped his face. As Mr. Martin politely but firmly refused to do any fighting, Mr. Goodman left for a more agreeable crowd. He next went into Kraut's saloon. Located at the uh, building with the crystals in the window, yeah, the old uh-huh, Kraut building. Uh-huh. Uh, he next went to Kraut's saloon where he ran into Commissioner Thomas Wilson Branson. He gave Mr. Branson a couple of beautiful blackened eyes, a skinned nose, and a swelled head, and wound up by challenging anyone in town to a fist fight. Of course, he ends up getting sued by Commissioner uh, Branson and, and having mm-hmm. to pay fines for that. Um, but, uh, Henry Goodman, he was the, um, old IW Lacey cowboy, Irwin W. Lacey of the Lacey Coleman outfit out of Texas. Mm -hmm. Um, Mrs. Lacey said that if Henry Goodman had been with her husband the night that he was killed, that big Dan, the man who ultimately killed her husband, uh, wouldn't have stood a chance and he would have been killed long before he ever got hung in Tombstone, Arizona. Hmm. Uh, so... Uh, Henry Goodman, he was normally this sensible Southern gentleman from Edgefield, South Carolina. Mm -hmm. Uh, He would still get in his, uh, probably his wine cellar that he had behind the house there. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wanted to be good old cowboy days of uh, of throwing his weight around. And he would walk to town and do it. (laughs) (laughs) My, can you imagine that happening today? Right, exactly. (laughs) And not at all. Especially, I mean... He, you know, at the time they mentioned he's the wealthiest citizen in town. So you have to imagine somebody who is very well known, is very recognizable. He walks in to Cooper and Martin and basically steals the nose of VP Martin and slaps him in the face. And he's like, nah, I don't want any part of this. Yeah. And then he walks down and like throws a punch at the county commissioner sitting in the saloon. Yeah. (laughs) And then beats him up. So Goodness. Goodness, man. I'll tell you. So uh, if you're just not tuning in, I am here with Mr. Stephen Zacharias from the Moab Museum, and we are talking about the beginnings of Moab, and um, I'll just go ahead and just sort of plug this right now, Um, uh, because we, I know at the very beginning of the episode, we were talking about um, how a lot of times, you know, we often think of Moab history, we think of uranium and tourism, but... I think that this is probably some of the most important part of history. And much like the buildings on Main Street, um, I know I've said this uh, two years ago um, when I started this history show. Um, and I said that, you know, you look at the you look at the old buildings and then you start looking at the modern buildings and it, we can very easily swallow up that history and uh, and forget about it. And but. Uh, so, uh, Stephen Zacharias here is, um, on a mission to, uh, preserve that history and to keep that history alive. And so, um, yeah, we're kind of right there in the same neighborhood <laughs> of, of just loving these old buildings and the beginnings history of, uh, Moab. And, uh, that first song that we played, um, on the music, uh, on the music break there was called the Blue Mountain Song. Uh, so, uh, apparently, uh, the Blue Mountain Song is a local song. Is that, is, is that right? Well, it's a southeastern Utah song for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was originally written by uh, a uh, justice, uh, William Keller, uh, excuse me, uh, Fred Keller. Uh, Fred Keller came to Monticello in 1919 after serving in the Great War, or World War One, as we call it. And he was looking for a place for him and his wife to go that was 
pretty much as far away from civilization as you could go <laughs> without being totally out of civilization. Yeah. And he landed in, in Monticello, and o- over time, uh, he got to be very familiar with the old cowboys of Monticello and the stories of the early years. Mm. And he ends up writing this song, Blue Mountain, uh, with horse head on its side, which anybody who's been to Monticello and has seen the the, the pine trees growing on the side of uh, the Abajo Mountains there mm-hmm. uh, in the shape of a horse head. Mm-hmm. Um, they are very familiar with Blue Mountain and the horse head on its side. Uh, he re- makes references to quite a few different uh, gentlemen in there. Latigo Gordon, the owner of the Blue Goose Saloon, mm-hmm. uh, of course being a Warner Eugene Gordon. Uh, of Moab State Bank and a few other investments here in town. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Yarn Gallus, as we mentioned, is uh, David Lafayette Gadlock, um, Mr. Gadlock's mother, sending him yarn suspenders every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one that I find interesting is Zapatero, Don't Tan My Hide. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zapatero is the Spanish word for bootmaker, mm-hmm. and the local sheriff or town marshal or whatever you want to call him the the lawman in Monticello in those days mm-hmm. was Nephi Bailey, who was an Englishman, who was also the boot maker and and cobbler there, mm. uh, shoe repairman in uh, Monticello, and so in the song he's re- referred to by the Spanish term a zapatero, um, which I have always found interesting. Uh, one of the things we try and talk about um, is the where cowboy culture in mm-hmm. America comes from. And our cowboy slash buckaroo culture of the American West is rooted solely in two different uh, cultural experiences, and that's the um, vaquero, the Spanish vaquero, and the American uh, plantation culture, uh, enslaved mm. folks. Mm-hmm. Um, on the Spanish side, you have uh, people coming from the Iberian Peninsula in the 1500s, 1493, they land in the Dominican Republic. Uh, the Spanish conquistadors had previously invaded North Africa, taking back goats and hogs and cows and horses and sheep mm-hmm. to the Iberian Peninsula. And by 1493, they do that again to the Dominican Republic. Um, but what they're also bringing back from North Africa are North Africans and the Mm -hmm. vaquero, the Spanish, they firebrand people. They don't firebrand animals. Mm -hmm. Uh, so they then get to the Dominican Republic. They dominate the Dominican Republic and from there head to South Florida and to central Mexico where they then repeat the domination of the cultures that are there, mm-hmm. bringing livestock with them, branding their enslaved folks, and then moving north over hmm. the next, uh, you know, two, three hundred years, driving that life. And so vaquero culture, or what the white guys call buckaroo culture, mm-hmm. is uh, the influence of that vaquero life. And then the southern plantation comes into effect, especially just before the Texas trail system takes off. Mm. Uh, when... In 1863, we have the Emancipation Proclamation that frees slaves in Confederate-held territories. So what do plantation owners do? They take their livestock and their enslaved folks, and they move to the Republic of Texas because the Republic of Texas is Southern sympathizing, but they're not recognized as a Confederate state Mm. of America. Mm -hmm. And so you can continue doing what you had been doing in Louisiana, Mississippi, Florida, Georgia. You just do it in Texas. And uh, so on plantations, you had um, black men who are never a man. Mm -hmm. You are either an uncle or a boy. Mm. If you're an uncle, it means you no longer are physically fit and able to do the task, but you can teach a boy Mm -hmm. how to do the task that you once did. So you're Mm. a boat boy, an oars boy, a field boy. Mm. You are a house boy or you're a cowboy. And your job is to take care of of the cows and the livestock and those cultures really all come together Mm -hmm. finally on those texas trails the goodnight loving trail the denver and cheyenne and eventually billings and medora north dakota and deadwood and kansas city missouri stockyards and fort worth and san antonio you have this mix of this indigenous afro uh, Spanish culture that all comes together to create um, our cowboy culture of today. Hmm. Um, those uh, 
those enslaved folks from the south are bringing the traditions of the griot with them in west africa you have the storytellers or the, the keepers of your tribal history is a man who has a gourded instrument with three strings and he plays music as he tells the story of your people he's called a griot well that instrument becomes the banjo the guitar and the violin or fiddle that mm -hmm. we see on the texas trails and that tradition of storytelling and, and, and tradition keeping around the campfire and the chuck wagon at night comes from that, that West African origins uh, mm. to the American West. And then you have um, the indigenous folks that ha are dominated by the Vaquero culture. Mm -hmm. They introduce that the, some of the best trackers are your Mexican cowboys. And why is that is you have Incas and Aztec and all these cultures that have been here a lot longer on Turtle mm -hmm. Island oh, than, yeah. than people from Europe. And they're tracking animals for food. They're tracking animals for water sources and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so now you have this cowboy whose DNA has been to track animals. They can see a hoof print in the mud and they can tell you right down to which mother cow made that imprint and then they can go find it for you and show you this hoof is the hoof print that mm. made that track in the mud so vaqueros get to be really known as those trackers and then you know later on we have cowboy scouts and so you're going and getting an in indigenous cowboy mm -hmm. somebody who's native american or afro-indigenous or spanish to be hired by the u.s army to help them track natives as they hunt down you know, Indian campaigns in the American West, uh, you get that scouting from into cowboy culture. It really comes from that early domination of indigenous cultures hmm. in North America. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of cowboys uh, out here were uh, basically cowboying and running down in uh, Indian Creek. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we first see in 1885, uh, we see two partners, uh, David Cooper uh, mm -hmm. from Iowa and Melvin Turner, originally from Maine. He was a logger with his brother Hiram uh, back in Maine. They made their way to uh, Durango, Colorado, mm -hmm. and eventually were jack drivers as a team. Uh, they ran burrow trains mining miners because if you could mine miners and farm farmers, you made the most money. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so they were eventually able to build up their own little um, separate or joint herds. It's kind of hard to tell historically, but depending on who you read, between four and 600 or maybe eight to a thousand head of cattle, mm -hmm. they acquire and drive them from Colorado into Indian Creek uh, down there in Bears Ears on the edge of Canyonlands. And on Indian Creek, they build a dugout and they start running their cattle operation there. Uh, between 1885 and 1896, they would be joined by a variety of other families. The biggest standout, most significant standout being Commissioner John Brown. Uh, Mr. Brown was from Draper, Utah. Uh, he is of Scottish-American ancestry. It's Scottish-American History Month, so mm -hmm. that was kind of fun. He originally settled near LaSalle, mm -hmm. uh, and he met uh, Thomas Ray, the first man to bring cattle to our valley. In 1877, he brought 60 milking Durham cattle, uh, a multi-use animal. You could milk, you could haul, and you could eat uh, the Durham milking shorthorn cattle. Huh. And uh, so that was the first documented cattle in our valley was 1877. Well, Commissioner Brown fell in love with Fanny Ray, Thomas Ray's daughter. They got married and they... they didn't want to live so close to uh, the in-laws. So he took them down to Indian Creek and became neighbors with Cooper and Turner and a variety of other folks down there. He established one of the finest uh, dugouts all along Indian Creek uh, that included an irrigated hayfield, orchards, and a beautiful vegetable garden uh, where he raised his family early on. By 1906, he buys what we now call Moab Springs Ranch, or folks for some reason call the old Taylor house. Uh -huh. Yes, I will give Arthur A. Taylor credit for building the house. Okay. But he only lived there for 10 years before he built his new place on the south side of town. Mm -hmm. 
Commissioner Brown, he lived in the Brown House uh-huh. from 1906 to 1922 when the bank foreclosed on him. Uh-huh. Uh, they lived there for 16 years. So it really should be the old Brown House. Right, yeah. And even on the 1880 <laughs> survey, it is listed as uh, the Brown House for some reason mm. uh, when he hadn't even bought it yet. He didn't mm. buy it till 19, <laughs> 1906. Wow. But on some 1880 survey we found the other day, it's listed as the J.E. Brown House. Uh, <laughs> but yes, Commissioner Brown, he was the commissioner responsible ultimately for the um, first bridge getting put across the river. That was mainly a self-serving thing, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ran sheep and cattle. Uh, he and his wife were partners in the Split D or Split Diamond Ranch. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and his brother-in-law invested in the Sinbad Cattle Company uh, as well. Um, and then he would run cattle from Arches all the way up to Gateway, Colorado. Oh, wow. And so if you've ever taken the back road with high clearance four-wheel drive to uh-huh. Gateway, you did that driving down John Brown Road on John in John Brown Canyon next to John Brown Creek, and you passed by John Brown Upper and Lower Uranium Mines uh, on your way to doing that. Everything was named after and, him. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he was uh, pretty influential. Um, yeah. He bought Addie Maxwell's hotel and turned it into the Merchant Hotel mm-hmm. and ran a successful restaurant there. That's um, the same building, right? The Maxwell House is what... No, that was where the Maxwells lived, the the house gotcha. was. okay. Uh, they had a hotel that occupied the space where Back of the Beyond is now on okay. the end of that. They were the end of the... The, the north end of the business block. Gotcha. So we've okay. been right across from Jailhouse Cafe and where Coffee Roasters is today mm-hmm. would have been that uh, uh, Merchant's motel, Hotel, which is uh, John was John Brown's last business investment in yeah. town. Cool. Right on. Yeah. Um, so, so for those who are uh, tuning in and listening right now, I actually just posted a uh, picture on the Facebook page for the Moab History Hour here. So if you go on Facebook, you can type in Moab History Hour KZMU, and uh, you will see this uh, really interesting sort of a United States map with photos of all of these folks that came from all over the East and a couple right here in our neck of the woods then it kind of shows them coming all right here into this area. Yeah, and I have to give a shout-out to our man Diego. He's the director of uh, our marketing and membership, and uh, he is an excellent uh, graphics whiz. Mm-hmm. He, cre- he created this map just oh, based on, on me sitting down, and I had created <laughs> something similar using Google Maps uh-huh. uh, just so I could show him you know, these are where everybody came from. How do we tell that story? And he's yeah. like, well, let me play with it. And his playing with it created this awesome, uh, he took an 1880 map of the United States and then he created everything else. Wow. Um, so he did an excellent job with that. And it's really to show that, yeah, we have a couple guys that come from Texas, but a majority of the guys come from the Midwest and the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And they all uh, converge. And they... They don't all get along. They don't always all like each other. They don't mm-hmm. all have the same belief systems or, or core values. But it's a group of men who learn to, with their families, create a community on what we now know as Dugout Ranch mm-hmm. uh, of the Nature Conservancy and Canyonlands uh, uh, Research Center, and especially the Red family. Uh, we'll see on the map there, one of our Utah guys was Lemuel Hardison Red Jr. Mm-hmm. He was the president of the LaSalle Mountain Cattle Company. His son, Charlie, becomes the head of that company and eventually uh, buys out all their partners and creates Red Ranches, mm. uh, which is still one of the biggest Hereford uh, operators mm-hmm. in, in the world. And his descendant, uh, Matt Red, and his wife, Kristen, are still running cattle on the historic mm. dugout ranch down there uh, with his mom, mm-hmm. the newly inducted cowgirl into the Cowgirl Hall of Fame, Heidi Red, uh-huh. uh, down there. And even though Lemuel, Lemuel didn't come to Moab, he invested in our businesses here, mm-hmm. the biggest one being the First National Bank. Uh, that bank was successful because it was backed by livestock, the mm. original stock of and the original market. Mm-hmm. Um, Moab State Bank was foreclosed on because it was mainly backed by 
cash mm-hmm. and coin, mm-hmm. whereas we had all the li- largest uh, uh, livestock operators in our region invest in Moab mm. First National Bank. Um, so guys like Red were able to do that. Uh, Henry Goodman from South Carolina, we've already talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, he originally parted with uh, Rinsler Lee Kirk, a mm-hmm. man from upstate New York who uh, didn't want to go to Italy and be educated. So he said, I'm going to go west and be a cowboy. And he <laughs> came to Indian Creek with his partner, Henry Goodman, initially. 16 years, they run cattle in cross canyons. Uh, he and uh, Goodman built what we now call in canyon lands the Kirk Cabin, mm-hmm. uh, that you get backcountry permit and go check it out. Although you don't want to do that journey, I recommend everybody go to Dead Horse Point State Parks Visitor Center. Mm-hmm. And right now there's an exhibition that our own Tara Barish, uh, the collections manager at Moab Museum, uh, she put together. It's a brilliant uh, piece of storytelling. Mm-hmm. You can find out more about R.L. Kirk and his operation, as well as the women, the cowgirls of uh, the region. Uh, David Lafayette Gadlock's wife and daughter are probably the most famous uh, cowgirls mm-hmm. of the Canyonlands. Long before mm-hmm. you had women fighting for the right to ride astride, you had uh, Gertrude Gertie Gadlock mm-hmm. and Helen Gadlock Taylor mm-hmm. uh, riding astride uh, before the turn of the 20th century, mm-hmm. uh, before the parade in 1913 in Washington, D.C., to, <laughs> to let them ride astride. Uh, these women partnered. They were boards of directors. Mm-hmm. They uh, created the first busy women's club mm-hmm. of Moam, uh, and that club lasted for a hundred years mm. uh we have the gadlock ladies saddle in our exhibit because mm-hmm. 40 years ago helen gadlock taylor said we need to preserve the story of the ranching families yeah and in february 1983 she guest curated an exhibit for grand heritage to mm. be celebrated uh where local ranch families these original families that we talk about every thursday at 10 a.m mm-hmm. around town Uh, where they all brought things in. And about 10 months after that exhibit closed, uh, she donated the saddle that only her and her mother ever rode to cut cattle, Mm -hmm. run sheep. Uh, Helen Gadlock Taylor, her sons D.L. Taylor and Joe Taylor. Joe Taylor's got a great exhibit out at the Moab Film and Western Heritage uh, Museum right now at Red Cliffs. I encourage people to check that out. Yeah, definitely. She ran yeah. cattle and sheep with both of her, her sons. Mm-hmm. That cattle and sheep operation was originally the Indian Creek Cattle Company, the company that her dad and her mother were a part of. He retained the rights to run sheep on that brand mm-hmm. and eventually became the Gadlock Sheep Company. And then what we knew as the Taylor Sheep Company by World War II that then transferred to Taylor Ranches, Taylor Herefords, Joe Taylor running his quarter horses. And my favorite story that never gets told, but Google search it, Joe Taylor's Australian Shepherds. Okay. The, yeah, definitely have the to herding Google search sheep, that, yeah. The herding dogs of, <laughs> uh, of Southeast Utah and the West uh, are in large part due to Helen Taylor's son, Joe Taylor. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that's all the time we have today. I wish we could talk about this for another hour, but right. <laughs> we'll have to, maybe maybe we could do another episode right. and kind of <laughs> just kind of keep going. Uh, but thank you so much. Um, for having me. Yeah, I, I had I had a wonderful time. Thanks everybody for tuning in to the History Hour here on KZMU, and uh, I will see you guys next month. Mm-hmm.